invite you to take your copy of the Scriptures again. Open with me to the book of John, John chapter 21. Let us read, starting in verse 15 through the end of the chapter. John 21, 15 through 25. Continuing on after the breakfast meal, John records verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, Jesus continues, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now he said this, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had said this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, and the one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? And this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the living God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you this morning for an opportunity to gather. It is our great joy every Sunday morning, to gather in the name of Jesus Christ and to proclaim His name by the power of the Spirit of God so that You are glorified and honored. We live for You. And that means we live to worship You. We live to worship You Monday through Saturday and we live to worship You on Sunday. 
It is the first day of the week this day, and it is the highlight of our week. It provides the trajectory for everything else that we will do in the days to come. And it provides us the hope and the strength and the wisdom for those days. And we pray this morning that as we contemplate again the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, might our hearts be enraptured with Him, captivated by Him, in love with Him. And might the truth of the resurrection be a balm to us, our souls and a guide to our hearts. This week, every week, for your glory, in the name of Christ we pray, amen. Charles Spurgeon said about the resurrection, If you ask where God's glory is most seen, I will not point to creation nor to providence, but to the raising of Jesus from the dead. There is no greater reality in this world than that Jesus Christ was crucified and then subsequently resurrected. We make much of the resurrection unashamedly so, for good reason. It is one of the two pillars of salvation. The first pillar being that we are dependent on the cross of Jesus Christ. We, we all have sinned. And someone needs to die for our sins. And by default, we are, mo- we are the most natural choice to be the one who will die for our own sins. But it's not just enough that we would seek to find someone else to die in our place for us. The one who will die for us must by necessity be perfectly sinless. He must be sinless in not only his deeds, he must be sinless in his desires. In the inner man, he cannot have the slightest moment of deviation from the truth and the character of God. So we are dependent on one who would stand in our place on the cross, who is wholly unlike us in our sin nature, and that was Jesus. The second pillar on which we stand is that we are dependent on an empty grave. If Jesus Christ was only crucified in our place and not resurrected, then we have no hope of living either. He would just be another dead religious leader, and the graves are filled with those. Christ's resurrection, friends, is God's exclamation point of His acceptance of Christ's death for us. And because He lives, now we have confident hope that we also will live. Which is why Thomas Watson, reflecting on the power of the resurrection, noted the benefit to us when we believe in Christ. He said this, We believers, we are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. And some of you this morning proved that by the sluggardliness out of which you tried to eke your way out of the bed and with the aches and pains with which you rolled out of your beds. Oh, brothers, there is hope because of the resurrection. He lives and we will live. We will be freed from sin. We will never again sin. We will not even feel in glory the slightest inclination to sin. 
Do you know what that's like? No. (laughs) Because you have inclinations to sin all the time. Even if you beat them back and don't, the inclination in the heart is there. And that will be gone. We will have bodies that are perfected. No more forgetfulness. No more weight gain. No more illness. Everything gone that is our weakness. We will have life that is eternal. All these things and far, far more are a full certainty. Oh, brothers, praise the Lord for that grace to us. I don't know if you've noticed as I've been talking, but all those things are future. What about today? What good is the resurrection for you and me today? I mean, I I get it. There's a glorious future, and I am not in any way minimizing that. The future is astoundingly glorious, and we're looking forward to that. But what about today? Because the reality is, even if we have believed in Jesus Christ and we have the certain hope of eternity, brothers and sisters, we have one or two, one of two options. We either get raptured out of this place or we die. It's ahead for all of us. My dad has been fond of saying for many years now, death is one out of one. Nobody escapes. It's not death out of 1.0000001. It's one out of one. All of us. So what's the benefit of the resurrection? Are there some benefits? Now? Today? In this world? Oh, absolutely there are. The final accounts of the resurrected Christ in the Gospel of John give us a glimpse into some of the benefits of the resurrection. We want to look at these final verses in John's Gospel this morning and see the resurrected Christ and His love for His disciples and His revelation of the benefits of the resurrection. In these verses, what we'll find is this. Christ's resurrection provides eternal benefits, absolutely, But those eternal benefits have begun now. We are already experiencing some of that which we will experience in full in the future. Christ's resurrection provides eternal benefits which have already begun. What is the benefit of the resurrection? Well, I draw your attention to John 21, 15 to 25. And though the words resurrection and risen and raised from the dead are not in this passage, the truth of the resurrection permeates these verses. What is the benefit of the resurrection? In these final words of John's gospel, we find four glorious benefits of the resurrection for our lives today. And into eternity. This isn't just for today. But these are the kinds of benefits that will carry on for us into eternity. Four glorious benefits of the resurrection. The first is given to us in verses 15 to 17. The resurrection provides a redemptive solution to sin. The resurrection provides a redemptive solution to sin. Remember the context of these verses we've read, a a majority of the context this morning. 
Uh, We found the resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 1. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. It was still dark. The stone is taken away from the tomb and it's empty. She doesn't pause to look around. She doesn't pause to examine. She just sees the, the stone that's rolled away and she's distraught. She runs back to Simon and Peter, uh, to Simon Peter and to John. And Simon and, and, and John come running back. My, my dad's favorite line. This is my dad's favorite passage about the resurrection because he loves verse 4. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. That was John's way of saying, I run faster than Peter. <laughs> he always says, why, why does he put that in there? Other than to say, I'm faster, Peter's slower. You know, P- Peter's built kind of like me for comfort, not speed. And so they find the empty tomb. And Jesus appears then to Mary Magdalene. We find that in verse 11. He appears to the disciples as a group twice, verse 19, and then again, verse 26 and following. He's already had a private meeting with Peter. Remember Mark's account? Mark said, in Mark, the, we, we have the account that the angel says to the women, go and tell Peter, and the disciples that I'll meet them in Galilee. And if you read carefully in Luke chapter 24, those who are on the Emmaus road, it says this in verse 34. After Jesus had left, remember that Jesus walks with them, they can't see because Jesus had blinded their eyes to the reality of who he was until they got to the house. They invite him in, they serve a meal, or they prepare a meal. Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, I've often wondered, is that symbolic of or does it remind them of the breaking of the bread at the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000? Perhaps so. Perhaps it was how he prayed when he broke the bread. He gave it to them. They saw him, recognized him, and he vanished. And then they said this. They got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found there gathered the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen, and he has appeared to Simon. So Jesus had already had a private meeting with Peter. That day, the day of the resurrection, Jesus sought out Peter. And we believe, Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15. We believe that in that meeting, Peter is privately restored to Christ after his denial of Christ. Something really interesting happens in John 21. Jesus has now appeared publicly to the, to the 11. And uh, after that, Jesus showed himself a third time to them as a group in chapter 21. But prior to them seeing him, Simon and Thomas the twin, or Thomas Didymus and Nathaniel and the sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John, and two other unnamed disciples were together. And Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Um, some of you this afternoon, maybe you're going to say, you know, it's a pretty day. Let's go out on the lake and let's go catch some fish. That's not what Peter's doing. In spite of the fact that Peter's been restored to the ministry, restored, excuse me, restored to Christ personally, Peter evidently is still so disconsolate that he can't imagine doing anything for Christ that counts. And he's going back fishing for a business. How do I know that? Um, Because it says, verse 3, they went out and got into the boat. He had a boat lined up. I don't know if he took out a loan. I don't know if he had some cash. I don't know if he went to dad and got some money from dad. But he had a boat. That was the boat. That was his boat. 
that they got into. He's made the plans. He's going back into the fishing business. He's this consulate. Interestingly, Thomas, who had denied Christ, is there with him. Perhaps Thomas is considering something similar, still wrestling with the doubting issues. And then Jesus, in a most remarkable way, reveals himself to the disciples and gives them this massive catch. You want to go back to fishing, Peter? Let me show you what you can do about being a fisherman. I know that's your trade, but let me show you what a good fisherman you are. And he is skunked the whole night. And then Jesus says, let me show you what you can do with me and with my power. Put your net on the other side. I mean, that makes no sense. I mean, we've been fishing. Really? Seriously? Put your net on the right side. Drop it down. 153 fish. What does 153 fish mean? It means, folks, 153 fish. You got to know they counted them because there were so many. And they were all the large ones. I don't know, maybe where there were some little ones, the throwback ones along with that, but 153 large fish. And then they sat down and they ate. And that, John tells us, verse 14, is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was resurrected from the dead. It's perhaps a week or so after the resurrection. But that's not where the story ends. Notice verse 15. So then they had finished breakfast and Jesus said to Simon. This is a continuation. The story doesn't end in verse 14. The story continues in verse 15. And we are to understand that this is the continuation of the revelation of the resurrected Christ. This is more of the story of what the resurrection means. This is more of the implications of the resurrection for Peter and for the rest of the disciples. But he focuses his attention not on the seven that are there, but he focuses his attention on one in particular, though in focusing his attention on the one, the six over here. It's not just spoken for Peter's benefit, it's spoken for the benefit of the others. Jesus has already been reconciled to Peter. They've already restored the relationship. Peter undoubtedly has already confessed. Forgiveness has already been granted to him. He is back in fellowship with Jesus. We know that in part because when, when Peter finally realizes on the boat, it's Jesus. He falls, runs, jumps into the sea and says what? It's The Lord, it's my master. He's restored, brothers. So this isn't about restoring Peter personally to Jesus. This is about a public declaration to the rest of the disciples that that Peter is ready for ministry. Notice that as Jesus identifies him, John says, Jesus said to Simon Peter, so that we know which Simon he's talking about, But Jesus calls him Simon, son of John. Whenever Jesus called Simon, it's like when your mother used to call you or call me. My mother called me Terrence. That was a bad day. And if Terrence Mark ever showed up, it was a really bad day. And that's what happened here. Simon, son of John. Uh Uh-oh. In fact, if you go back and look through the Gospels, you will find that when Jesus corrects Peter, he always uses the name Simon. So there's not just, not just 
this idea of let's restore Peter, but there is a tone of correction in these words as well. It's a really brief dialogue, verses 15 to 17. You're familiar with it. There are three questions, there are three answers, and there are three commissions. And we find all of them really summarized in verse 15. Jesus asks the simple question, do you love me more than these? Now, some have speculated what these means. Does it mean these things like the boat and all the stuff, the fishing stuff? Is that a possibility? It's, it's a possibility, but it's probably remote. Do you love me more than the, these, the fish, the 153 fish? Is that what you're really after? That, that again is possibility, probably not. Do you love me more than these? I think Jesus is looking around at all the other disciples seated around that fire. Do you love me more than these guys? Why would Jesus ask that? Because in Matthew 26, before the cross, Peter said, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And he said that not just in the presence of Jesus. He said that in the presence of the 11. They'll bail. I won't. And so here's the question. Peter, do you love me? supremely do you do you really love me more than everyone else like you claimed to love me and so peter removed the comparison from his answer and simply said yes lord you know that i love you he affirmed the reality of his love he humbly did not assert a greater love than anyone else and he appealed to Christ's omniscience in that you know. Peter knows that the Lord can see into his heart. And so he knows there's no hiding, there's no running. And so he says, yes, Lord, you know, you know I love you. Much has been made in this passage about the differentiation of words Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Phileo, that's a word that's often used for something like friendship, love, fellowship, love. So as we leave this morning, you you undoubtedly will say to some people as you're greeting and as you're parting, saying things like, I love you. Um, Before you go to bed tonight, you will look at your spouse and say, I love you. Those are two different kinds of love. They're love, but there's a different level of love, a different notation of love in those kinds of love. Jesus says, do you phileo me? Do you friend love me, if you will? Or excuse me, do you... I've got that backwards, and some of you are catching that. Keith's caught me already, I know. I'm going to hear about it on Wednesday at staff meeting. Um, he says, do you agapao me? Uh, do, you, do you have the supreme love for me? Do you, have, do you have a willful, joyful love in me? And Peter answers and says, yes, Lord, I phileo you. I have friend love for you. And many have made... Much distinction about that because when you get to verse 17, Jesus switches the word. He says, verse 16, do you agapao me? Simon says, yes, Lord, I friend phileo love you. Verse 17, Simon, do you phileo me? And many have made much distinction about that and say, oh, so now Jesus is coming down and saying, do you even have this kind of love? And that's certainly possible. I think, frankly, it's just Paul, excuse me, John's variation of terminology because we find that all through this passage. He uses two different words for shepherding, shepherding and tending. He uses two different words for sheep, lambs and sheep. And he uses two different words for knowledge, though you can't see it in the text here in the Greek. There are two different words for knowledge. John's just using variety. He's a good writer. 
And he's using a variety of words to indicate the same thing. What's really of importance here is not the different kinds of words, but the fact that the question is asked three times. Why three times? Because there are three denials. And each of the three questions and the three affirmations corresponds to the three denials of Jesus Christ. And based on Peter's affirmation now, verse 15, and we'll find similar things in verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, tend my lambs. And with that word, declaration, he reminds the believers that they, he reminds Peter that believers in Christ need care and he, Peter, is fit to care for them. In spite of his denials, in spite of his sin, the Savior has restored Peter to the role of shepherding care of others. We find the same thing in verse 16 with slightly different stylistic variations of vocabulary. And then in verse 17, the same question is asked. And here we find John asking and uh, commenting, Peter was grieved. Peter was grieved. I don't think grieved because he was fearful of being caught that he really didn't love Jesus. That's not the point. Because he'll affirm again, I, I love you, you know. I love you. He's not grieved by that. He is grieved by the reminder that he's sinned three times in the most profound and significant way against Christ. And he's being reminded of those three denials by these three questions. And it breaks his heart. And so Peter answers slightly differently. He doesn't just say, Lord, you know. But he says, Lord, Master, Savior, you know all things. I can't hide from you. I'm not going to try and hide from you. I'm not going to try and delude you. I'm not going to try and be something I am not or assert that I am something that I am not. You know, you know the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts. So I invite you to examine me. That's an astounding idea, 10 days after his denial. You know all things. Examine me. Frankly, that statement is as gracious and persistently affirming of Jesus and his love for Christ as his denial of Christ had been. Because in his denial, the third time he denied Christ, I think it's Luke that tells us that he cursed. And it is something like this. I swear before God in heaven, I do not know this man. If I know this man, may God strike me dead. That's what that means. And this is Peter's corresponding affirmation of his love for Christ. Why did Jesus ask this? Why did Jesus ask this in front of the twelve? Because his, public, his denial of Christ was public. And now his restoration to Christ is public. Jesus isn't airing the dirty laundry of Peter in front of the other disciples. They already know what happened. They know the reality of his sin. And now they know the reality of forgiveness of Peter. 
And they, they know the reality of his restoration. And that it is affirmed to them. Brothers and sisters, Peter, in spite of his sin, is now positioned to serve Christ. And he never turns back. When you read his denials, you think, you know, things aren't going to go so good for him from this point on. Turn just a couple pages to Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are arrested. They come before court. Caiaphas is there. Annas, the high priest, is there. They're making accusation. And Peter says, great, I got an audience. And he launches into the gospel. That's not Peter around the fire on the night that Jesus is betrayed. Verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. This guy has a confidence that is wholly apart from what he is naturally. That's not Peter's nature, what you saw on that day. Consider verse 18. They summoned them again commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, Peter first. Peter's taken the lead, right? Peter's the spokesman. He's always been the spokesman, but now he's speaking particularly well. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge because we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now do what you're going to do, but we're going to keep talking. And you find the same thing in chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, and again in verses 40 to 42. Brothers, he didn't turn back. Christ restored him, and he didn't turn back. Let Let me just make two more observations about this interchange. One is, Peter's sin was real. And the sin was significant. We've already noted that Peter called down curses from heaven if he was speaking inaccurately. Luke tells us, verse 22, Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. Verse 61, this is chilling. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. He's caught and he knows he's caught. He knows the the words, even if all forsake you, I never will, had to be ringing in his ears. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Those words had to be ringing in his ears. And as soon as it went out of his lips, I do not know the man. May God strike me dead. Christ looks at him. power of that moment. Jesus knew the sin. Peter knew the sin. The disciples knew the sin. Watch this. But now they also all know his repentance. 
And they all know he's forgiven and restored. I want you to notice one other thing about this. Christ has called Peter three times to care for his followers, his sheep. Shepherd them, tend them, tend those who are little lambs, tend those who are sheep, tend all those who are in my care. And we understand that Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep, right? We see that both in the Old Testament and the New. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Similar Psalm 80, Jeremiah 23. We understand from 1 Peter chapter 2 that that Christ is the chief shepherd of the church. But Christ is not only the chief shepherd, but he has entrusted his precious bride, his precious people, to others of his redeemed people who will care for them. And so Peter, having been entrusted with this care of the church, writes in his first epistle, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. You ever wonder where we get our motto? Shepherding God's people by God's grace for God's glory. That's where it comes from. Because we are all responsible for the care of others. This isn't just something that's given to the Apostle Peter. It's given to all those who are in the church of Christ. Watch this, friends. All those who will shepherd are at the root sinners who need the forgiveness of Christ. And having received that forgiveness, they are now positioned to shepherd and care for Christ's flock. What's the benefit? Of the resurrection today, you ask? The benefit of the resurrection is that it defeats sin and death. And like Peter, it frees us from the condemnation that comes from sin. There's no more condemnation. There's no more bondage. There is freedom from the sin so that we don't have to sin. And along with that, not only are we free, but he says, now I can use you. It's amazing. The Bible and history are filled with stories of God turning sinners into useful servants. Consider, maybe this afternoon, just jot a note. Look up the story of Philemon. One who was useless. And Paul twice in the book of Philemon calls him useful now for service. A slave who ran away. Under the system could have been put to death because he had run away. And now Paul says he is useful, not just Onesimus, but, but Terry and you as well. Second Timothy chapter 2. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. There are all kinds of vessels. There are the vessels that you're going to put that ham on today and you're going to put it at the center of that table and your eyes are going to bug out and you go, I'm going to put that on the best china. And then there's the food bowl that you feed your dog out of. And in this culture, there was the, the bowl that you put the waste in the house in, like all the waste, if you know what I'm talking about. And you take that out and you got both those kinds of vessels 
And one of them you eat out of, and one of them you would never eat out of. Notice verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Those dishonorable earthenware vessels that you take the garbage out in, useful to the master. Not because they're valuable, but because the Savior who washed them is valuable. Oh, brothers and sisters, is there benefit of the resurrection today? Oh, only if you want to be useful in this life. Yes, the resurrection is the great answer to our great problem, sin. God redeems it and He takes it from us and He washes us from it and He uses us despite it for His great purposes. The resurrection provides a redemptive solution to sin. Secondly, notice this benefit. The resurrection provides a worthy Savior to follow. In verses 18 and 19, again, Jesus is continuing this discussion. They're still on the beach. They're still around the fire. And Jesus amplifies what it means for Peter to tend the sheep of Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk about where you wished. What does he mean by that? When you're young, you weren't constrained by anybody. You could go anywhere you wanted, do anything you wanted, and nobody hindered you from that. That's not going to be the case, Peter, when you get old. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. And some suggest that it simply means by that when you get old, you're going to be old and you're not going to be able to dress yourself. The joints aren't going to work very well and you're going to need your wife or some kind of other caretaker to put the clothes on you and then kind of guide you around. Uh, That's possible, but frankly, that's not terribly unique. That's the normative experience when we get older, right? He says, you will, someone else will gird you. And then note this, and bring you where you do not wish to go. If you have a caretaker that dresses you and leads you, where do they lead you? They lead you where you want to go. Hey, would you take me to the couch? Would you take me to the desk so I can write a note? Would you take me to the table so I can eat dinner? And that's where they take you. Not in this case. They're going where he doesn't want to go. Where does he not want to go? He doesn't want to go to the cross. And that's where he ended up going. John interprets these words for us in verse 19. Now this he, Jesus, said, signifying by what kind of death he would experience and by which he would glorify God. He's telling us Peter's going to be persecuted for his faith and face martyrdom. Brothers and sisters, Peter was well aware for the rest of his life, martyrdom is coming. And then note this as well, the kind of death by which he would glorify God. There is a kind of death that honors God even when we die by martyrdom, even when we die seemingly alone, even when we die horribly for our faith. That kind of death honors God. And by implication, what else are we to assert? assert? If that's the positive, there's a kind of death that honors God. We also understand there's a kind of death, what? That dishonors God. And it's a reminder to Peter that 
in the midst of this, while he would die as a martyr, he would die faithfully and never again turn back and honor the Lord in the process. This was not unique to the Apostle Peter, frankly. Well, Christ singled him out in these verses. What Peter experienced was, frankly, the norm for the other disciples. According to historians, Matthew was martyred by the sword in Ethiopia. Mark died in Alexandria after being dragged through the city, uh, city streets. Luke was hung on an olive tree in Greece. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil, escaped death, and then was banished to Patmos. James the Greater was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from a pinnacle of the temple and then beat to death with a club. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Andrew was bound to a cross where he preached to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through with a lance in the East Indies. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Barnabas was stoned to death at at Thessalonica, Paul, after many tortures and persecutions, you and I both know, was beheaded in Rome by Nero. And Peter was crucified at Rome, not wanting to suppose to be like his Savior. He requested that he be crucified upside down, and so he was. What Peter was called to was not unusual, and frankly, brothers and sisters, it is still not unusual. Persecution still exists. If If we want to follow Jesus Christ, we will be persecuted. Paul makes that clear in his first letter to Timothy. What is notable is not the promise of persecution. What is notable is what Jesus says after he promises that. Did you catch it? He said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. (laughs) That's a great strategy for recruiting new workers. Come work for me. The pay is terrible and people will hate you and they will hate you so bad they will end up killing you. Come on, let's go. And that's exactly what Jesus was promising. You follow me. What does he mean by that? Well, follow me simply means doing the things that reflect our submission to Christ and our obedience to Christ. And we find that all through, particularly the Gospels. Following means obedience. Following means submission. Following means a pursuit of spiritual maturity. And when Jesus says, follow me, it's a present tense, which means keep on doing it. Let this be your habit. Let this be your course of life. You follow me. Because even if you suffer, it's worth it. If the resurrection, brothers and sisters, was not true, then following Jesus would not only be a waste of time, it would be a waste of life. And it would be the greatest act of foolishness that you could possibly do. People will say things like, well, you know, I'm following Jesus, but even if he's wrong, it's still good because I've had a better life because of it. Wrong! If Jesus isn't resurrected and Jesus isn't the way and you follow him, you're a fool. 
Why? Because there's someone else that is the answer and you've spent your life chasing the wrong answer. That's exactly Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only. In other words, if if Christ is only good for today, if he's only a good moral teacher, if he's only if he's only valuable in this life but doesn't have hope for the life to come. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Why? Because it's all wasted. You've chased the wrong thing. There's nothing to be gained from following Christ and obeying the word of God if it isn't true. Oh, but don't read 1 Corinthians 15 and stop at verse 19. But now. Don, you had one of those in Sunday school this morning too. But now, God, right? But now, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. He's simply the first of many that are going to come behind him. He has been raised from the dead. Oh, and brothers and sisters, if he has been raised from the dead, then following him wherever he takes us is the best thing we can do, even if it means certain martyrdom. Oh, brothers, don't waste your life. Follow Christ wherever he leads. And what we have in these opening verses of this section, verses 15 to 19, is simply a demonstration of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus Christ means that like Peter, I believe that I am a sinner who needs forgiveness and only Christ can forgive me. We, we saw a hint of that In verse 31 of chapter 20, these things have been written. This book, this letter, John says, has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He is fully God and fully man. And that believing, trusting, having faith in Him that His death is sufficient for my sin, you may have life in His name. You've got to believe I'm a sinner and I can't help myself and Jesus is a Savior and He's my only way to life. And that believing in that, I'm released from the penalty of sin. God, brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God is not angry with you. That's astounding. I don't know about you all, but... I probably don't have to go back very far today to think about instances of sin today. And God is not angry. Why? Because His anger was appeased in Christ. And the resurrection proves it when He raised Him from the dead. He's enough. Second reality about the salvation of Jesus Christ is that like Peter, we believe that Jesus is worth following and obeying. We want to do what he says that we should do. Brothers and sisters, salvation is not simply um, sin insurance. You know, I've sinned a little bit. If I've made a mistake that I'm not good enough for, I'll believe in Jesus and just make sure that all the bases are covered. That's not what it is. Salvation is a new way to live. 
It's a new trajectory of life. It's where God takes your life and you're going this way and he absolutely turns it upside down, sends you in a whole new direction, a better direction. Follow him wherever he leads you. Whatever he exposes in your life that needs changing, he'll change and it'll be good for you. You follow him. If you're with us this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you just say, you know, Jesus interests me. I'm, and he's, a, he's a good moral teacher. I don't know about this whole deity thing. I don't know about this whole cross thing. I'm really not that bad. I mean, you ought to meet my neighbor. I get it. I happen to have good neighbors, but I get it. I've had bad neighbors. And um, you may say, I just don't know that I believe. Brother and sister, friend, you need Christ. It's the only way. And I exhort you, I urge you, I compel you. There's nothing greater that you can do than on resurrection day saying, Lord, I trust you to be my resurrection, to be my life, to be my covering for my sin and to provide me a direction to go and a place, a person to follow. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, I urge you, would you believe in him today? Would you follow him today? If you're not sure what that fully means. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to one of our other people afterwards. One of our other members, they'd be happy. I have a little booklet in the back I'd love to share with you called Two Ways to Live. If you're not sure, let me share that with you. Take it with you. Read through it. It's a reminder that Jesus Christ is a new way to follow and he is worth following. Three benefits, excuse me, four benefits to following Christ. And you're looking at the clock like I am saying he'll never make it. We'll make it. I promise. The resurrection provides a redemptive solution to sin. That's one benefit. Secondly, the resurrection provides a worthy savior to follow because he's resurrected. He's worth it wherever it takes you. Thirdly, the resurrection provides a hopeful reason to endure. Hopeful reason to endure. They're still on the beach. Evidently, they did get up and they're walking now. And as they're walking, Jesus and Peter at the forefront, the other disciples trailing around. Peter, verse 20, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So John's right behind him. Peter looks over his shoulder, sees John following them. And he, um, we know it's John because John identifies himself at the end of verse 20. He's the one who had leaned back on Jesus' bosom at the supper and said, Lord, is the, who is the one who betrays you? And so Peter asks the question about G, of, of Jesus about John, verse 21. Lord, what about this man? What about him? Now, don't disparage Peter. It could be that Peter's saying, well, what about him? I mean, is he, is he getting the get out of jail free card? It could be that. We don't know. We don't know what the tone is. It could be that Peter says, I'm going to glorify God in my death. I'm going to persist to the end. What about him? Will he make it? I want glory for him too. And it could be that Peter's asking that. We, frankly, we don't know. And Jesus' answer is remarkable. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Um, in other words, Peter, it's not your responsibility. It's not your concern. You don't need to know. Frankly, it... it it reads a lot like Job 38 to 41. This extended, I'm in control and I'm sovereign and I'm going to dictate and I'm going to tell you what you need to do and, that, do and that's all you need to know. And then he says, Oh, Peter, you do have a responsibility. I know you're concerned about John, but you do have a responsibility. And that responsibility is you follow 
me. Don't worry about what's going on around you. Don't worry about who's, who's getting away with things and who's not getting away with things from your perspective. You just make sure that you're following me. Don't, don't get on the comparison game. You follow me. In fact, the, the emphasis is particularly strong. You, Peter, you follow me. You just take care of yourself. Peter should have a passionate concern, but his passionate concern shouldn't be about what's coming in the future. His one concern always should simply be to follow Christ obediently and consistently. And that's a good word for us. When we don't know the future and we don't know what lies ahead, and when we are fearful, we might even be particularly fearful about persecution and suffering or anything else and looking at the culture and saying... The world has spun off its axis. What in the world? And Jesus' word to Peter applies to us. You just follow me. It's in my hand. I'm in control. You don't worry about how you need to orchestrate life for everybody else. You just follow me. You persist. And you endure. John does add an explanation, verse 23, because everybody misconstrued at that time what Jesus had said. And they said, essentially, John's not going to die. Meaning he's either going to stay until Christ returns or he's going to be graduated to heaven like Enoch and Elijah or something else, but... John's not going to die. And John, John clarifies, no, 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 no. That's not the issue. The issue is Jesus simply said, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? It's not your, not your business. I'll take care of John at the right time. You just follow me. He's saying with those words that it is worthwhile to follow Jesus, even with the promise of persecution. How can he say that? Because of the resurrection. Now, you might say, well, Terry, where's, I don't, I'm not seeing anything about resurrection here. Okay, that's true. But there's a conversation going on in this passage, right? There's a conversation between Peter and Jesus. Which Jesus? The resurrected Jesus. It's as if Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, look in my eyes. You follow me. Me, the resurrected one, the one that can't be killed. And you trust me and I'll take care of you. This idea of the resurrection just permeates this interaction with Peter Even when you're martyred, Jesus is saying, it's not the end. Look at me, the first fruits from the dead. Yeah, death may be coming for you. Death will be coming for you. But you follow. And you'll find me to be worthwhile. Yesterday, I jumped online. Regina had asked me for something earlier this week and I jumped online. I happened to remember it like two days late, but I, I did remember. 
and I jumped online, I got onto Amazon, and I ordered something. And I got to the checkout thing, and right before I pushed click, it said, will be delivered April 9. I looked at my watch, that's tomorrow. And that wasn't one of those, you know, it'll be, you know, sometime between May 13 and June 22nd. Say what? Right? And we don't like waiting. We don't like that anticipation. What is it going to come? 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 Brothers and sisters, Jesus made this promise to Peter. You will die. And he lived with that hanging over his head, as it were, for 30 years. And mark this. He never turned back. Let me just read you a couple of things that he said to those who were entrusted to his care. First Peter chapter 4. First Peter is all about suffering. I'm going to start at the end and work backwards. Chapter 5. Resist him, Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of his suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself self perfect confirm strengthen and establish you that's written by a man who has a death sentence on his head chapter 4 beloved verse 12 do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of christ keep on rejoicing Chapter 2, you have been called for this purpose, verse 21, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his his steps. Christ suffered, you suffer, you follow him. Chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed the last time. It's safe. Why? Because Christ is resurrected. You persist. For 30 years, the apostle did And that's our calling as well. G.K. Chesterton well said, the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Oh, friend, there are treasures in Christ. You persist, you follow. Wherever he takes you, you endure. It's worthwhile. The resurrection secures that promise. One last benefit today for the resurrection. The resurrection provides an incomparable person to follow. We're not just talking about a guy. We're not talking about Spurgeon. We're not talking about Calvin. We're not talking about Luther. We're not even talking about Paul. We're not talking about Abraham. We're not talking about Moses. We're talking about Jesus Christ. And this is a disciple who's testifying these things. John takes up the pen, makes an editorial comment. 
I'm testifying to these things. I wrote these things and we know that this testimony is true. You flip back through the pages of this book or roll back through the scroll as he had written it and he says, you know it's true. And there are many other things which Jesus did which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain all of the books that would be written. That's really similar to what he said at the end of chapter 20. And he's speaking in hyperbole, right? He simply means that this gospel that he's written contains only a small sampling of the words and works of Jesus Christ. If you were to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and read to chapter 21, verse 25, you could read through it audibly, depending on your rate of speech, two hours or three hours, right? So you can read through it pretty quickly. Two or three hours, the account of Jesus Christ. Well, we know Jesus Christ was alive for 33 years. It can't contain everything because it's read in two hours. And even beyond that, you can consider that really the Gospel of John start in chapter 12 and move forward to chapter 21. Most of that is about the Passion Week and all of it is about two weeks of Jesus' life. Half the book of the, Apostle, of the Gospel of John is covering roughly two weeks of Jesus' life and even that one week is one chapter. So we know there's, there's much more to Jesus than we can know about. In all the writings of all the books are about him. So the hymn writer said it this way. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every blade of grass on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. It's, it's just hyperbole. Or is it? Remember John's prologue? Very first thing that John wrote in this in this chat in, in this book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this Word that is manifested, he tells us later in that chapter that it's Jesus Christ. This Word that is manifested, that's in the human flesh, is much more than just human body. It's eternal God. Brothers and sisters, I don't think he's writing with hyperbole. I think he's saying, if you could write enough books to fill the entire earth from the bottom of the sea to Mount Everest and beyond, you cannot capture the nature of the infinite God-man. We will be with him for all eternity and he will constantly be unfolding the riches of his grace to us and we will never exhaust it. You can't know it all. And that's John's point. There is someone here that is magnificently incomparable. You will never reach an end of studying the Savior. Some of you have been married 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Some of you even longer than that. And you're still discovering aspects of each other that you didn't know. I mean, you get out of bed one day and you go, I didn't know that about you. And that's a sweet surprise most of the time. Well, brothers, it's always a sweet surprise with Jesus when you discover more of him. And you will never exhaust him. He's a treasure without end. That also means something else. 
Because Christ has infinitely put himself on display, that means a rejection of Christ is an infinitely terrible sin. There's nothing worse you can do than not following Jesus. Oh, friend, Jesus is not someone who is inconsequential. He's not a meal to be left unfinished, a ball game to be turned off, or a conversation to be ended. He is your all. He is everything. He is the incomparable and resurrected Savior. Oh, friend, believe in Him alone. He is the resurrected Christ that came to transform your life. Father, we thank You for the hope of Christ, the hope of glory, the hope of resurrection, not just resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday, but resurrection for us one day in the future and resurrected living now so that we are not bound to keep living in sin and struggling, but we are freed in so many ways to enjoy the blessings of what Christ secured for us in His salvation. Father, might that be a delight to us today on Resurrection Sunday, and might it be a delight to us every day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.